This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Hi, everybody, and welcome again to my podcast, to the Awakening Now series on the Be Here Now Network, founded by Ram Das. I'm Lama Suri Das. Welcome. And today I'm talking with my buddy and comrade and spiritual friend on the path, a Dharma teacher, a, an author and journalist, a lawyer, a rabbi, a very interesting thinker and guy, a good guy an LGBT activist, Jay Michelson from the New York area. And he has a recent book out called The Gate of Tears. I think it's his sixth book. He writes a column for the Daily Beast, although he's not a beast, he's a gentle sattva, and we love him. And he also writes for the Daily Forward, the Jewish, quote, magazine. And... Um, He's a great guy, and we have a lot of things, interests in common. So I'd like to hear from you, Jay. Like, how are you today? I know it's cold out, and you seem to have a little cold. What's, uh, what's warming you up these days? <laughs> well, you know, I think we're um, – it's first, it's, it's really nice to be here, although I feel like I'm a little bit at a DOS deficit if I'm on the Ram DOS radio network and interviewed by Siri DOS, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to DOS it up somehow. Uh, <laughs> we count on that. That's good. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's been um, I've been teaching a bunch of retreats uh, since uh, since the election uh, a couple of months ago. And, and I think, um, you know, being able to do deep work with people when a lot of our folks are in a lot of pain uh, has actually been really um, inspiring. You know, it's not that things are necessarily going to be OK for the next several years, but we do have tools uh, to exist in the midst of of what is to come. And to help those who are not as, uh, you know, who are, who are not as safe as we might be. So being able to help people develop those tools for themselves, you know, that's actually really, I don't want to say lifted my mood. That's almost too trivial. I mean, that's really been a, a consolation over these last few months. Beautiful. I'm, I'm with you on that. And um, I'm doing the same and similar, you know, as, as always. And um, I'm not sure it's worse now than ever, but it does it does seem pretty um, disturbing. So I, I'm thinking, you know how parents get in the habit of telling kids it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay no matter what? And in the bigger picture, that's a very, you know, okay. And yet in the details here and now, I feel like 
a little less than okay about what's going on. And um, although in the long run, it all, uh, you know, comes out in the end, but I feel like it's very important to take a stand, speak our truth. I don't know if resistance is exactly the best way, but to do something, not to give up, not to become cynical or uh, bitter and resentful and work together and go find a good way forward, a third way from the partisan politics and the us-them mentality, even in the bigger world that we often fall into. A third way, a fourth way, a deeper way, and the practices, like you mentioned, the tools are so important for changing ourselves, which of course changes the world, the inner life and our outer activities and manifestations. Yeah, and I, I tend to agree, and I, I've had a lot of conversations with my students over the last few months, just di distinguishing um, and using kind of mindfulness tools to distinguish between the various different factors of mind that are present, you know, when we turn our minds to politics or to the news. You know, the worst case scenario would be for relatively safe people to turn away. Yes. Right. So a lot of people don't have that option. If you're an undocumented person in this country, you can't turn away. Right. Um, but, you know, probably most of the people who come to our, our retreats and who work with us probably could. You know, if we really wanted to, we could turn off the news, uh, take a nice bubble bath and, and forget about all the bad stuff that's happening. So that, that would be the worst case. But then, you know, as we do engage, as we decline to turn away, you know, I think it's helpful to really separate out what's going on. I mean, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of confusion. And just being aware of those factors of mind when they're present I think has helped me personally uh, just act a little skillfully and also act a little less. You know, there's a sense of flailing around right, right. now that yes. happens. And, and, you know, I think it's interesting that you brought up that concept of uh, resistance because it's so vague, you know, that, you know, clicking my name on a petition could be resistance. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, you know, what, what's resistance, what's not, <laughs> you know, whereas I really prefer from the other side of my professional life, the, the political side, as opposed to the Dharma side, you know, targeted actions, being specific and all those kinds of things. And that's where I found the tools of the Dharma to actually be incredibly valuable to just say, all right, I'm in a lot of fear right now. I'm feeling desperate. That doesn't mean that this action that's right in front of me is the right one, or I should believe this story, or I should take the bait and go into this particular, uh, you know, post that somebody's made. Somewhere there's a medium between the bubble bath and not being engaged at all and reading every single thing that comes along the pike because I just somehow want to get a sense of control. And so I don't want to say it's been a good time to practice because that seems to minimize the, the danger that many people are facing. But for people who aren't facing that danger imminently, and I think I'm one of those people, it is a time, an opportunity to see the factors of mind so clearly that there's so much anger and that there's so much uh, fear inside of myself. I don't mean, you know, judging other people. Right. And that's that's been actually, uh, there's been a, a real opening, I think, in my practice over the last few months as a result. Well, that's good to hear. I remember the inspiring and great Thich Nhat Hanh during the anti-Vietnam War peace movement days in the 60s and 70s, and he is Vietnamese, so he had a lot to say, and he was a refugee in France and on the world scene, the great monk and Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, mindfulness introducer in the West, really. And he said, when we, we the royal we, invited him to a peace march, uh, to an anti-war demonstration in March in New York, he said, I'm not interested in that. Let me know when there's uh, what I can be for. 
I've come to the peace march. And he ended up leading a peace march, leading, you know, co-leading with the Berrigan brothers and other leaders with spiritual and activist credentials and not, you know, in the late 60s, a peace march from Central Park down Fifth Avenue, the Central Artery in Manhattan to Central Park. And they needed a permit and they had a time, you know, it was supposed to be take an hour or two. He led the maybe hundreds of thousand people walking slowly. He didn't teach mindfulness. He was in front with those other colleagues of his, esteemed colleagues, and they walked so slowly that it took four hours to walk. And that was the statement about, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what we're for. Peaceful, slowing down, paying attention, not just right. fast reaction and thinking about things and, and making our statement here peacefully, but strongly and not being hurried along by the policemen on horses or the parade permit people exactly. And it was really a counterintuitive move to the hyperactivism and what I call the enraged Buddhists of the time. We need right, to be engaged, about, not enraged. Allen Ginsberg uh, leading chanting, you know, in the square outside of the Chicago, the, the Democrat convention in 68. And I think that's also about that kind of balance. It's not to say that outrage isn't appropriate, you know, but it's to say, well, is it is it useful or skillful in this moment? Um, do I actually need to increase my rage level? And sometimes I do actually, right? Sometimes, you know, we, we want to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And sometimes afflicting the comfortable means raising consciousness. And that might mean increasing the, the base anger level a little bit. But most of the time, you know, I, I think probably you and I agree that, you know, it's easy to access anger. It's not hard for me to feel really angry about uh, this or that political issue, especially now. And so what's harder is to have that balance. And, you know, I think I'm not sure it really worked when when Ginsburg was leading that chanting. But the idea, you know, he was afraid for his life. He he saw that a lot of the protesters were really were violent. He saw that the cops were armed and that this was going to turn into potentially a bloodbath. And it's possible. Who knows? You know, that that just that lowering of the energy in that particular moment may actually have saved lives. And we'll never know, obviously. Um, But I see that also with, you know, again, with with my students who, you know, we just don't need to take the bait every time Uh, there's another, you know, post or something online or, or we read something that every single time we have to take the bait somewhere. There's that balance. But I'm curious to ask you, actually, you know, I think there was a little um, back and forth in some of the Buddhist um, uh, website newspapers a few months ago that I was part of um, about the role of, you know, should we feel angry or not? And there Mm -hmm. were a couple of teachers who said, oh, no, 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 don't ever feel angry. Um, You know, that's not the way we we, we don't want to feel angry. And then there were others who who chimed in and said, well, actually, that's not really true. Sometimes anger is justified and it's necessary. And, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, to me, one of the nice pieces about having a more kind of non-dual awareness perspective is that anger arises within something else um, and that it, it's possible to shift back and forth or be in both simultaneously. I'm just curious, you know, how, how you've been um, working with that in these last few months. Well, since 9-11, I've been paying more attention to the news than I used to in my hermit and retreat, long retreat in Asian study and practice Himalayan monkish days, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it could be depressing, but when I am one-on-one with younger people or doing something I consider meaningful, there's an irrational optimism and buoyance. So that helps. And um, 
I follow the middle way. Buddha taught the middle way. He never called it Buddhism, balance and appropriateness. So I have a very strong opinion about this, and uh, I'm not afraid to say, I'm not going to say those are immature teachers who say you shouldn't be angry. I'd say those are not the wisdom teachings of Buddha, and there's a, of, of, those are not the wise enlightenment teachings that I know about, and we know about that uh, there's a big difference between anger and hatred and rage, and there's a difference between feeling angry and acting it out, not to mention violence, but any kind of acting it out. And there's a way to constructively channel the emotions, whether it's anger or other difficult emotions, like into creativity, like Pablo Picasso did when he painted Guernica after the Nazi Luftwaffe bombed the crap, bombed the hell out of the town of Guernica in the Spanish Civil War. And that great painting's hanging in the Museum of Modern Art. It's one of the greatest disturbing paintings in modern art. And I think it's an early example in the modern art movement of this kind of channeling of the rage into a statement, into art as activism and social con awakening the social conscience. Because that, So I think channeling it is very cre uh, important. And saying not to feel it is a, is a half-baked idea of Buddhist teaching of equanimity and non-attachment. Feeling it arise and observing it, a mindful awareness helps. And then choosing when and if and how to respond, that's up to us. And that's the secret of freedom and autonomy within interdependence and like mindful anger management or mindful lustful management, mindful emotional management, not control freakism, but having space to be aware of things arise, feeling the feelings, and then being able to respond skillfully, awarefully, intentionally, not just blindly react to the stimuli that we don't like or that we like. Right. We, we might have feel we like our, you know, this is just a caricature. We like our neighbor's wife, so we, or husband, we, we just grab. That's right. the immature, you know, like the dog with the, the piece of bacon. We need to be a little bit more evolved in that. I'm quite sure we want to be more evolved in that. And mindful awareness in the present moment helps us do that and then habituate to that over time so we don't fall into road rage. We just feel angry if somebody cuts us off and then watch it go by. And we may very well do something about it, but not necessarily ram them. Yeah, I, I, felt, I felt there's been sort of two sets of tools when some of these emotions have come up for me and again for my students in the last couple of months. One is, as you've just described, uh, so you're, you're noticing the emotion and, you know, you feel your feelings. You maybe decide skillfully not to act on them. You know, the other is some of the stuff from some of your earlier books. You know, I don't know if that's like asking Paul McCartney to play Beatles songs like he doesn't want to do it. But some of the some of the early stuff about staying in the view and yes. kind of a, a zooming back. One of my Dharma friends, Kenneth Folk, calls it um, just going upstream. Mm -hmm. So you're feeling your feelings, and then you kind of go upstream, and it's just unfolding as it does yes. with radiant pure awareness. And that second piece has been, I think, a little harder to teach sometimes because right. it's so subtle, but actually incredibly liberating. Well, I think that's the ultimate freedom, or as I said, let's not overlook this phrase, autonomy within interdependence, not just being free of everything as if you're running away autonomous self-mastery within interdependence, whatever's happening. So you don't suppress the feelings or emotions or have to avoid things externally, but you recognize that they're all just ripples on the stream or waves in the sea. So I like that about going upstream. What it, what it means is if I dare to explain your friend's 
wise uh, words, it means stepping back, and I don't mean separating yourself from it, but sort of prior to what's happening right now, going back into the bigger picture, like it's raining. The, if the child says it's raining today, it's, it's a bad day, you say, no, it, it's a good day for the flowers, and let's go to, I don't know, the movies or something indoors. It's not a bad day. It could be a very right. good day. Well, and there's, there's the... Um, you step back into the, the bigger and. picture. Yeah, and. Right, right, yeah. No, it's it's and practice, right? So it's it's there's this there's this uh, difficult emotion or this very seriously bad thing that's actually happening, uh, and there's also this other perspective. And having those both, having that both and for me, um, you know, and, and as being as um, as kind of lubricated as possible to be able to slide from one to the other, uh, to really engage right. and feel yes. the feelings and not minimize the danger that the, uh, that many people are in. Um, and then sliding to to that larger perspective, because yes. I think you know I wanted to bring this up earlier. I think our real mission for most of most of our students are pr pretty privileged. I think most of the Dharma community, not entirely, of course, and hopefully there'll be fewer. You know, there'll be more people who have less privilege who are coming into the Dharma community over the next few years. But by and large, you know, the the majority of the people who do this work are, are relatively comfortable, and I think our task is is actually now going to be protecting others. So it's not about my feelings or my, you know, yeah, I'm, I want to feel morally pure or I want to do this or I want to do that. It's actually the fact that friends of ours and community members of ours, you know, people of color, Muslims, undocumented people and others yeah. are in danger, you know, and now it's actually the case because, you know, with, with changing in healthcare, right, friends of mm -hmm. mine have just lost their insurance and they will at the end of 2017 yeah. anyway. And, you know, so there are people in real danger. And those of us who are feeling bad, it's fine to feel bad, but those of us who are, who are feeling bad actually have a responsibility to serve and not just serve food at the, at the soup kitchen, but actually find ways to stand with people who are in physical danger uh, and will be over the next few years. Well, people are in danger of being deported also and other things. And um, of course, we need to do something about changing the systems and not just, uh, like you said, food kitchen, but teaching people to fish and they can, you know, as the Chinese story says, not just give them fish for lunch, but teach them to fish or go fishing with them. Uh, it's very important so they can feed themselves for a long time. But uh, also I want to say... I, I thought yeah. that was Maimonides, the Jewish guy in the 12th century. Now yep. it's a Chinese story. It's from <laughs> it's from Changzhou in the pre before time of Jesus, but I'm sure Maimonides said it too, since you're a rabbi, you would know that. <laughs> and he was great. Um, and, and I think we also have to recognize, and it's been said before, so this is not a new thought, but it's important, I believe, to remember that inaction is also a karmic action, and being complacent in the face of injustice, iniquity, and suffering, and, and inequality makes us complicit in the uh, injustice. So just standing right. by while somebody else is being harmed makes us complicit in the injustice. And uh, doing nothing is also a karmic activity and has its repercussions. Like if we do nothing about the environment, we see which direction environmental degradation is headed. So it's really an ignoring, it's an ignorance manifestation. And since you mentioned the non-dual and the bigger perspective, I don't want to overlook that because it's easier to talk about mindful anger management and all that that's sweeping the country, mindfulness is effectiveness. And yet the bigger mysticism that it's based in is coming from this, this large view 
of unity within diversity. And whether you look at it in the theistic way as everything is God's will, and I don't want to give it, make that an excuse for passivity. I'm just saying when you surrender, like saying thank you for everything, like the mystics say, and you also say thank you for your impulse to help, and you do that. You don't have to inhibit right. that. And so I think it's very important to find the balance there. Like I always say, in the middle way, balance, appropriateness, not all or nothing, and not always and never. And also finding your own voice or style. Some people are more active, some more um, contemplative, some more with others, some solitary, and also in different parts of our lives. Yeah, you know, before uh, before you and I were friends, I just used to quote you a lot. So I, I had a, an earlier book of mine called Everything is God, which was a sort of Buddhist-Jewish hybrid book, mm-hmm. like most of my books are, and uh, and talking about that and that oscillation between the sort of expanded mind or, or just, you know, radiant awareness and and then right back into it. And without, you know, without there even being a sense of a membrane between the two, um, but just having, having both of those. And, you know, I've, I've thought a lot over the last couple of years um, about what's the, you know, what's the next step after the McMindfulness people get into, into, you know, something more serious. Don't so, go too fast over that. Could you say again, that, that little key word, it had something to do with McMindfulness, McDarmas, McDonald's. Right, exactly. So mindfulness, you know, I think a lot of folks in our, in our teacher world, um, want to dismiss McMindfulness and it's easy to dismiss it because it is McMindfulness and it's a little, cheesy and people are making a lot of money and that makes people feel envious and so then they mock the people who are making all the money um but i've never been one of those people actually i I mean i i think if mcmindfulness is helping alleviate alleviate suffering that's you know that's great and it's also i think a really good gateway drug so i i think you know my guess is that around 10 percent of people who you know do a sort of basic mindfulness intervention maybe they're in the healthcare system or, or at their job or something like that I do feel like about 10% or so will want to take the next step um, mm-hmm. and say, all right, well, how do I deepen this? What's, you know, this is, this has been really helpful. How do I get the next things? And that I think is still pretty unexplored. And I, I think, I don't think we know really what the, you know, what's going to work. Um, and it'll be really interesting to me because if 10%, you know, there's 1 million people trying meditation for the first time every year, right? That's the statistic that's more a, or less. So a that's a lot of people. If we have a hundred, a hundred thousand new serious meditators every that's year. A that's a huge number, right? That dwarfs what we've got in the entire Dharma world right now. And I, I don't, I think it'll be interesting if some of those people come in and then they're getting these more non-dual teachings, what the response is going to be. It's almost like there's almost been like a little bait and switch. Like, wait, I was just trying to relax. I wasn't trying to be one with everything, you know, like your uh, new book title. And yet that is what the framework is behind these, uh, these teachings and technologies that have helped them. Um, so I'm actually really curious to see how that's going to develop over the next um, couple of years. Well, I have um, an opinion about that as everything, and I'm not I'm shocked. Shocked. There's gambling <laughs> establishment. Shocking. Um, I think every everything has you know its implications, and every little every little bit counts. But there's also you know some. incremental change and then sometimes a big leap or exponential change where things really leap forward and hyper jump to another dimension like from flatlands to three-dimensional in that mythology or literature so people um, a lot of people doing a little spiritual practice or a few people doing a lot of spiritual practice it's hard to judge in terms of leavening the whole loaf evolving the race making a better world and and better 
you know, what better, uh, more evolving in the, in the positive way, whatever that means to you. So I think it's really important, and I'm all for mindfulness and its uses, but not just leaving it at that, just like yoga for health and exercise is fine, but there's the whole eighth, eight step eight limbs of yoga, including oneness with God and devotion and service to others. It's not just for self-oriented health or looks. So getting in the door is very important, especially in our uh, culture where it's new and so materialistic and scientistic that having any religious or spiritual seeming or even consciousness, awareness, cultivated practices is very significant. So I'm not against the yoga for health in the YMCA. I'm all for it. And I, uh, still, I think it's good, and this is kind of part of my mission, is to teach the teachers and educate the educators and hold the bastion of the bigger dharma that's coming, transsectarian universal, but also the non-dual awareness of Buddhism and Vedantic Hinduism and the oneness teachings and the surrender and the, the being consumed by God teachings of the theistic religions and so on. I think it's very important not just to reduce it to praying for my healing or praying for the, my child's healing or praying for somebody to win an election. That's so local in time and space. But there's so many levels to, quote, prayer. There's so many levels to meditation. Yoga means union. In Tibetan, the word for yoga is reunion with the natural state. Think about that. What does that have to do with calisthenics? Reunion <laughs> with the natural state. Reunion with the source, the origin, the totality. Right. And I do think it's it's going to be... I think in the I think it'll be an interesting thing over these next couple of years because in the first of all there's going to be a lot more dukkha, um, unfortunately, and Suffering. and there's also you know there's a, a a real gap right now I think between um, where the Dharma world is uh, and the, the new people who might be interested in partaking in it. I think there's a real space. You know, it's it's been I think we might look nostalgically to the last. 15 or 20 the years old days the, yeah when it when was it new was and fresh like and, and it was kind of small you could do a retreat with 20 people and yeah it and was a great fine. teacher and, yeah exactly and yeah and you know now place. you know in five ten years of course i just uh got invited to a conference on uh, meditation and technology so at some point you know you'll just pull up jack in your brain and yeah. you won't need to sit at all um but certainly between now and then there's this period of time where i think a lot of people will be interested in taking the next step and i, I don't know i don't know if we have what will appeal to them because i don't think we know we have no idea i think all uh, of this is in an improvisational state as life is, always is but particularly with movements and you know from the old to the new or the old world to the new so this 50 or 100 years is uh, improvisational and experimental and we're not sure what works we have some ideas we have some experience we have some who came before we can learn from. We have younger generations who are helping and informing us of what works. And that's very interesting. Technology is part of it. It has been for a long time before Gutenberg. I mean, when the Bible came out, the Catholic priests were totally, the, I mean, the printed Bible, the Catholic Church was totally against it because right. the priests had all the knowledge and power until then. So technology you know, continues to challenge and also um, help us. And I think now, like I've heard there are online retreats. Not only I've heard, I've even given one for Tricycle magazine. Mm -hmm. So even Tricycle, which is an excellent project for 25 years, we just celebrated the 25th anniversary. Uh, 
several of the series teachers have given online retreats, but it's more like a seminar. It's not really a immersion retreat. It's not really a getaway in nature, silence, solitude, and intensity. It's more like a seminar one or two nights a week for a month. So we, we want to maintain the idea that there is such a thing a retreat as a retreat, that one can immerse oneself in and go deeper, not just lose the word by having it be diluted, like same word, diluted meaning. Like right. when people say everything is meditation, why do I have to sit? Say, right, there's also standing meditation, walking meditation, chanting meditation, Zen in the art of archery. But at a certain point, it starts to become a rationalization. Why do I have no, to meditate? I, I'll meet you at the bar. Bring your own. Right. Well, I often go with my students just to one of the definitions of awakening, which um, in the Pali Canon, which is the intuitive knowledge of the Four Noble Truths and emphasizing the word intuitive. Right. So we could just recite the Four Noble Truths right now. Does that mean we're fully enlightened? No, I mean, it, right. There's a difference between knowledge and intuitive knowledge. And I actually like that the neurodharma is telling us a little bit about what that actually means, right? That it's not just a, a phenomenological, a psychological state, yes. but that there's a difference between actually learning something just as learning it and what happens in the brain when you really get it, right? When you get it in your kishkas. Kishka is really, you know, supposed yeah, to be the guts, guts, but the guts, the brain, right? There's, yeah. you know, now we know actually, you know, there's neural connections in the guts also. So there's a difference between knowing and an intuitive knowing. And so far, at least, and it, I think it is probably a temporary thing, but so far at least, there is no way to get the intuitive knowing without walking the path, right? Map is not territory. Right. Without um, experience, yet, experiential yeah. learning, not just and yet, you know, so I, I've been teaching, as you know, um, jhana, which is a you know, form of kind of concentration practice, entering these very specific um, mind states, which arise and pass, but which can be very helpful for practice. And it's interesting, I've had a few students over the last uh, few months who have done online courses uh, where they learn the conceptual frame, but you can't, one of the downsides of jhana practice is you really do need a concentrated period of time yeah. and retreat right. and so forth in order to build up the concentration. But they come on retreat, and since they, since they know the map, I don't have to spend time explaining it with them, and they actually traverse the territory pretty well. So yeah. I, I actually kind of uh, come around to some of the online retreats, which I think you're right, it's more like a seminar. But then somebody shows up and they're able to find the 10 days in their calendar, mm -hmm. which is very difficult for people to do. But they, you know, they can square out the 10 days and they go and do you know, one form of meditation or another. And because they have the map, that's actually, that's not, that's not a substitute yep. for the work, but that does help them do the work. So I've actually really appreciated it. Well, theory and practice has to go together. Otherwise, you don't know what you're doing. You know, just sitting there like a rock or a frog doesn't necessarily mean that you're um, in cosmic consciousness or cultivating awareness. So I, I want to come back to the issue of the difficult times we're in and how I deal with it and anger and how to constructively hold it and all, Jay, and how to use it as fuel to drive constructive activity and so on. First of all, I feel like... Um, Being disappointed or beaten on or even a little humiliated in this last political season, maybe, maybe we could feel about what a bubble we've lived in and how surprised we all were, like the, people, the liberals were when Brexit occurred in England. It was such a shock what happened in the last election. And, you know, there's another whole country out there. And I travel the country all the time, as you probably do, so, but still in our bubble. 
in like Woodstock Nation. Now today I'll call it Buddhist Nation, but not seeing this other side. Let's call it the red side to be uh, stereotyping. And uh, but vulnerability and you humiliation or uh, being humbled, I think, has a very positive aspect. And you probably talk about this in The Gate of Tears, and I know you wrote this around the time of your mother's death and so on a few years ago. It softened me up. It's like being pounding on like a piece of meat has also sensitized me to the poundings that other people endure, the disenfranchised right. or the immigrants or the, the marginalized members of different gender groups or the poor, the people without advantages, not to mention the slaves ripped from their home countries. And there's still child slavery and uh, white slavery and different kinds of slavery in the world, if not in America. So it sensitized me. I, I more, I'm a little more, I don't want to make any claims, empathic. I can feel more what other people feel and identify more of feel with and move with and be moved to move with and maybe help or at least put shoulder to shoulder with those who are being beaten on or disenfranchised or ignored or overlooked or marginalized. And I feel like this is a huge softening or opening for my heart, mm. mind too, but heart and sensitivity that 45 years of meditating, and I probably missed some of this in the loving kindness and compassion, empathy, altruism trainings and so on. Um, it's really helped this humbling well, or disappointment yeah. or surprise or being beaten, you know, being tenderized or being humiliated, uh, more vulnerable, therefore more sensitive and caring naturally, not because I should be or because that's what the good book says or what the compassionate Buddhist teachings are. No, there's, you know, and, and the tragedy of it is that since Reagan in, you know, in 1980, the way that that pain has been channeled by a, a huge part of our country has actually hurt themselves, right? So Trump is not the first candidate who, you know, appeals to the so-called white working class and actually has solutions that are going to make it worse for them. Uh, Reagan invented that formula. And, you know, these were people who were, had decent union jobs that Reagan destroyed the unions. These are people who were left behind by technology, uh, but because of the gutting of education spending, they weren't given the tools that, that they could have used uh, to get different kinds of jobs for the 21st century. And, and now they've done it again. And, and I think, you know, we've, it's not actually new in that regard. And I, I, it's funny, I went back to look at some of the stuff that Rabbi Michael Lerner had said back in the 80s and 90s around the politics of meaning. Mm -hmm. And it came to my mind when you were talking a minute ago about um, on the other subject about doing spiritual work, you know, it, it is actually the case that these folks wanted to connect with a person who seemed to feel their pain. And it's it's almost ridiculous to imagine, you know, the billionaire Donald Trump in his gilded cage up on Fifth Avenue being the man of the people. But that is how he sold himself. And he's yeah, nothing else. Salesman. Yeah. And, you know, that's what they that's what they bought. You know, they bought this guy who talks like them. Who, who feels their pain and who doesn't have actually any ideas. His ideas are actually either non-existent or they're going to make it worse. But that's the tragedy is that, you know, and, and without getting in the weeds is like, was this a, you know, it's, it's related to sexism. It's related to racism. It's related to all those things, you know, and, and the tragedy is that they fell for it again. 
and they're going to get hurt again. It's, it's, you know, already, you know, we've read the stories of coal miners who are, who are using the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, you know, to get treatment yep, for their, right. you know, black lung condition. Now they're not going to get that. You know, we've already heard, you know, that people who are like, no, please don't break our union. And, you know, this is the labor secretary coming in as one of the most anti-union labor secretaries ever, probably ever. And so it's this tragedy where the inability of uh, progressives to kind of get it in a fundamental way, and I'm not putting this on Hillary Clinton, I think it's, it is a wider phenomenon, um, leads to this, but it's, it takes two to tango. The tragedy is also that the so-called white working class, it's not, not really accurate, that's why I keep saying so-called, actually they're a little more yes. well-off than we think, but mm-hmm. we'll call it that, the white working class. It's also a tragedy that they were held back by their own prejudices, uh, by their own prejudices about women, uh, about African-Americans when it comes to how they related to Obama. And so it's a tragedy on all sides that, you know, they were held back and 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 they voted for someone who's going to hurt them because of their limitations. And progressives weren't able to connect because of our limitations. And um, it, it really it's just a, a grand tragedy playing out. And last thing, you know, when when Brexit happened was the first time that I thought Trump might win. And I had a lot of friends who were English and, you know, they, they were completely shocked and surprised. Um, and angry, just like we were on uh, November 9th, uh, the day after the election. And, um, you know, I wrote a piece saying that this could happen here. And uh, unfortunately, I was right. And it, it's just the, the we don't take seriously the spiritual needs of a, a large chunk of our population because they express those needs in ways that are so um, offensive to us whether it's right-wing religion, conservative religion, or, or you know, race-inflected rage and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and it's a tragedy. Well, a British journalist uh, told me that she thought that Trump had a better, much better chance than anybody in America thought after the Brexit surprise, and she turned out to be right. I discounted it at the time. But um, you must have been prescient when you <laughs> wrote that piece. Uh, I don't know what your quote, typewriter eats and drinks and breathes. But so what are you going to write now? What, what do you see coming, Mr. Prescient? <laughs> Luckily, I don't make too many predictions. But I know uh, that. Was, but, you know, what do you see now? And uh, it's a question I'm throwing out to you, to me and to everyone who's listening. What do we see now and what can we do about it and not just do and flail around, but reflect upon, question, explore, shake Try to get out of our box. Um, try to, you know, feel into other people who are different than us. Whether we agree or disagree is kind of uh, secondary, perhaps, at the moment. But try to learn more. Like I remember when nine eleven happened, and the Middle East blew up as it's been uh, going up and in, in, you know getting hotter for many uh, generations. But the national uh, agencies like the CIA, et cetera, only had two or three people who knew Arabic who could deal with the information and the communications with that, those countries. And it was unbelievable. We were still like isolationists. Yeah. So what are we going to do now to deal with the so-called others in this country and in the world who we can't understand? I, I happen to have learned a lesson that I want to share that I don't talk about that much, but since you've talked personally... One thing that helps me a lot, and I learned this from living in a cloistered retreat center for three years, four years almost, um, in 
Tibetan monastery retreat center, not going out except in the courtyard and all those really cloistered, how to love even the ones we don't like because they're so much like us. And if I grew up the way they did, I'd probably believe and vote and think the way they do. And it was really a leap into seeing things through the other's eyes. I came to love everyone there, all 23 of us, even though I didn't agree with them or like what they voted for or who they what they wanted to do about different issues. And mm. I think we need to learn to see through the other's eyes or uh, get a little more cultural literacy, spiritual literacy, and not be so reactive against the others in this divided country and divided partisan times. The world is so increasingly interconnected. We're really going to suffer from that mentality. No, I, that's right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's two things I would bring out. One is we need to use our heart to get to, to help our head. Uh, which is by, what I mean by that is use these technologies of, of personal development, spiritual development that we've been building for ourselves and now, you know, apply them to to really be as smart as possible in our political action. You know, a lot of it is hypothetical. So when I look, I just wrote an article, uh, for example, about the next attorney general uh, who praised a right wing <laughs> extremist and who said that without God, there is no truth and that secularists can't run the government. Um so, you know, it's we're, we're only now at the level of the people, right, rather than the policies. But we need to use the heart to educate the mind. Um, so with that love that, that you just talked about, um, identifying specific, you know, actions that can be taken or, or policies that can be born in mind. But I think the second piece is, is that really our job is for the next few years actually to play defense for the people who are at the most risk, uh, for the people who are really uh, going to be targeted. If we really implement, if our country really implements a national stop and frisk policy with the militarization of the police, there's, you know, the, the, the number of black lives that have died, that have been ended in the last couple of years due to police violence is going to be dwarfed over the next several years. I mean, it's, it's truly appalling. So for white folks like you and me, that might mean actually showing up with our bodies in places mm -hmm. where witnessing. And so, you know, it's actually it's 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 actually reorienting a little bit away from, you know, what can I do to express my opinion, even though it's pointless to call my congressman right now, I'm just going to do it because it makes me feel better. Mm -hmm. Shifting and saying like, okay, I, I see that I want to feel better. I get that, that I can see that clearly. But what's actually needed now is a different kind of action. And it might mean, you know, quote unquote, adopting an undocumented family. There are organizations that can connect you so that that family knows that there's somebody who's there who's watching their case individually because there are going to be millions of these cases, right? It's totally overwhelming. And there's no way that the organizations themselves can actually keep track of all these cases. I have a friend who's an immigration lawyer in New York who works with the Dreamers. These are kids who came here. They were brought here by their parents uh, when they were three, four years old. So they're undocumented. Right. But they've lived here for 20, 30 years at this point, 25 years. And so these are kids who have gone through college, who are living the American dream, but who are undocumented because they were brought here when they were kids. And they gave their information to the government in exchange for not being deported. And now the government has all of their information and the new government wants to deport them. So it might be adopting, quote unquote, you know, getting in touch with one or two people, physical people, so mm -hmm. that that person knows there's someone looking out for them. That may not make me feel as good as, you know, clicking yes on a, on some petition online, but I could make it, it could, that's, that's make where the difference. drama comes in. Somebody's like, it's not life. about my feeling good. It's about how can I intervene and, and protect someone who's more vulnerable than I am. Well, as we mature in Dharma, and I believe in life, Jay, and tell me if you don't agree, 
we have to move from the I to the we and beyond and um, not just think about how we I feel or if this is helping me, but, you know, like if we have a less carbon footprint on the earth as an individual, how it helps the planet and things like that. And I think it's very important for us to get into the we-ness and that's why I like to talk about co-meditation and not just think of meditate or intermeditation as something that we do alone or we cut off or get away from everything. And there's so many ways to connect and commune and see through the illusion of separateness. And I know you're an LGBT activist and other, and you're writing, you know, and so forth. Uh, how can we help this, given that the system seems so... A strong and impacted, like you mentioned, the new nominee or uh, uh, attorney general, um, and, you know, which I have heard he's a racist and a very uh, mixture of church and state conservative Christian guy. Uh, how, how can we affect the systems, of course, voting and being informed citizen and other things? What can we do in the next days and years, and not just the four-year picture, but in, you know, at this point in history, in our lives, the next uh, 5, 10, 20 years, really, that can help change the systems while we change ourselves for the better together? Well, so, you know, I think the, the short answer is get local. Um, you know, you got to actually meet the people around you who are doing this work, whether it's in the party of your choice or whether it's outside of partisan politics, but if it's like the kinds of connections I talked about before and, uh, and, you know, we got to, we, we actually have to get involved in our local communities. You know, I was very happy to hear that Eric Holder, the former attorney general, uh, the previous one, uh, is going to get involved with fighting this, uh, redistricting effort that the Republicans led. That's actually really helpful. That's going to come down to brass tacks to like local people and local communities, even if we live, you know, I, I mean, I, I live in right now, you know, I'm in Putnam Valley. It's a red town and a red county. So there's an opportunity for me to just go across the street uh, where there's a Muslim family. I'm not going to actually knock on their door and ask, how can I help? But figuratively speaking, how can I help? How can I help people who are threatened in my own community, in my own local community um, in a way that's, of course, respectful to them and, and actually helpful, not just about making myself feel better. Um, but, you know, it's funny that, you know, you mentioned the carbon footprint there, and I actually will have a, maybe a little fun, friendly disagreement about that, because I think a lot of times there's like a virtuousness that we feel around, oh, I have, you know, I'm lowering my carbon footprint. But it doesn't matter if we all lower our carbon footprints, if there, if there isn't change on the infrastructure level, right? If we're still using coal to, you know, and uh, there's no such thing as clean coal. So we're going to have more coal mining and more carbon emissions as a country. You know, if we don't actually change the sort of the, the large scale stuff, it actually doesn't matter a whole lot uh, what my individual carbon footprint is. It just makes me feel better to know that I'm not part of the problem. Well, that's fine. But if we want to actually be part of the solution, we need to sort of engage with people who still think that or who have been convinced that carbon, uh, that climate change isn't real. And we need to learn the science ourselves. And we need to have those difficult conversations uh, with our family members or with our friends and we on a retail level. Right. People. There's a Quentin Crisp, a great gay activist from England, said people get stupid wholesale, but they get wise retail. <laughs> that's a great saying. I love that. And so that's Thank what we got to do. That's true in the Dharma world as well, obviously, right? We're all under, we're all, we're all in mass yeah, delusion. Right. But to get wise takes a lot of retail work, individual yeah. work. Yes. And that's 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 the kind of work that has to happen. And so it's it's not just um, 
you know, about making myself feel good that I'm doing the right thing, but actually what can make an impactful change um, in the big picture issues that are that are facing us. And, and often that's just rolling up our sleeves and, and getting really local, asking our local representatives to the state level how we can help, uh, you know, even in blue states like Massachusetts and New York, there's a lot that can be done on, uh, that has to be done on the local level. And that's the kind of action that if we have in our hearts the compassion for people who are really vulnerable, we can have the heart of compassion, but an armor of steel as we do the work out in the world. And, you know, when it's time to do battle, you know, I think of some of the Tibetan wrathful deities, you know, they're not the cuddly, cozy deities. When it comes to fighting delusion, they're pretty wrathful. Right. And they're they're going to they're And that's I think that kind of that attitude. I want to get get away from the sort of cushy Buddhist attitude where I'm, I'm afraid to feel any difficult emotion. So I'm mm -hmm. just going to feel really, you know, warm, stupid compassion, you know, to use Trump Rinpoche's uh, term, you know, toward uh, or idiot compassion, he said, uh, to just feel good as opposed to, well, sometimes I got to be a wrathful deity while keeping the compassion in my heart. So. Thus, we use the word wrathful deity to make a distinction between enlightened, selfless, proactive wrath against injustice and what's wrong and can be rectified, and pure ego-based, reactive, or fear-based anger. The wrathful deities are imagined as having compassion and wisdom at their heart, so that it's right action and and the skillful and not just angry reactivity. And that's an important distinction. And then one can take very uh, powerful positions like um, Mahatma Gandhi did in breaking the yoke of the British Empire over his country with a nonviolent resistance and truth telling the power of truth, ahimsa. One thing I'm concerned about is that, and as usual in all of these actions and concerns that we lose the part that you mentioned at the end there about Wisdom comes, it gets developed retailed or individually, while stupidity or foolishness seems to get developed wholesale. We lose the interiority and the subtle and the quiet amidst all the noise and the activism. So I'm not for quietism. I, I'm a pacifist, but not passive, let's say. Right. No, it's got to be. I mean, that's why I like the wrathful deities as an image right now, because um, on the one side, there are some who are just who just want to only be quiet, contemplative, quiet, quiet, quiet. Um, and just, again, that's why I called it, you know, bubble bath practice. I mean, I like <laughs> bubble baths, but, you know, if that's what we think, that's not going to change the world, right? That's actually right. just going to take me out of play. But yeah, on the other side, there are those who say, no, we have to be angry all of the time, and I'm not on that team either. You know, there are some folks who say, oh, don't do too much yoga or meditation, you'll get too happy, and then you right. won't want to change the world. Well, that, worldly-minded. Yeah. Yep. So that's, you know, that that's um, that's nuts and and clearly demonstrably not true, even though some smart people say it. And uh, and so, yeah, it, it has to be that. That's why I like the wrathful deities that have this this uh, mm -hmm. this indignation outside. You know, they're they're serious about doing the work they're doing, but inside they're doing they're not doing the spiritual practice. But we have to do the spiritual practice to keep that uh, wisdom and compassion there. And I, I've just noticed that my own activism you know, like you mentioned, I, I used to do LGBT activism kind of full time when it was really motivated by anger against the, the bad guys. It just wasn't as effective. So let alone that it didn't, you know, I, I, it didn't feel like righteous or dharmic. I just wasn't that good. If I if I let the anger dictate how I talk, 
talked and how I acted and which steps I took, yeah. I ended up alienating people. Right. So, so yeah, just nobody, you know, like I, I've had one-on-one -on -one confrontations with people where in my mind, you know, so somebody says something offensive and in my mind, I just want to punch them, right? <laughs> but that's not the way to win the argument if there's an audience and there's people who are there. So let alone the sort of dharmic view of, of uh, you know, it would be better not to punch people. Even just practically speaking, and you see it right now, especially on social media, there is this flailing around. And I, I'm totally sympathetic to that. We talked about it before. But if we could see where that's coming from, where this, with this, you know, from this desire to somehow have an impact, a sense of powerlessness, like you said, a sense of humiliation, um, you know, we wouldn't flail as much. We don't need to waste all of that energy. You know, we could use the heart to educate the mind and, and just be really smart and targeted uh, with that wisdom and compassion at the center. I think one thing that's misunderstood is people don't understand, especially when they think about the spiritual practices, you said that, that acceptance and contentment has its own transformative power. People right. think non-attachment, acceptance, etc., letting go implies necessarily complacence, and indifference but there's a big difference for example the grandparents are more accepting of the grandchildren than the parents who have more invested and less experience and even a better example i feel is if you don't accept the diagnosis of your of a of your disease you can't start working on a proper health, you know effective cure you might get a second or third opinion, but eventually you have to accept the diagnosis before you can act on a proper, appropriate, effective cure. So I think cultivating non-attachment, equanimity, and acceptance, and the bigger picture, while maintaining the relative commitment to acting locally, thinking globally, and acting locally, and every everything you do, think, and say counts. It's like having a unitary vision or binary visions, seeing the unity and diversity at the same time, depending on what's at the forefront, which pot you have on the front of the stove or the back, the oneness or the particular specific effective action that needs to take place, thoughts or actions, intentions, words, deeds, whatever. And I think acceptance goes a long way to its transformation. I pretty much can guarantee it. And to make it personal, if I don't learn to accept and love myself, it's really theoretical or, or worse. It's just ineffective to talk about loving everyone and loving the one in some big, abstract, non-intimate, very far away way. Right. No, it, it has to be. I mean, that's what The Gate of Tears, you know, that book was really about, that it has to be opening uh, to the fullness of our experience and and yielding and surrendering. Again, not in a sense of passivity, just like you said, but uh, it, we've... It, it's it's very easy to say things about love and about also about justice and and uh, awakening and blah blah blah, but if there's not actually that time you know on the metaphorical or real cushion, uh, where you're actually coming to accept the the shadow parts that are there mm -hmm. that are parts for all of us, um, it's empty words and it's words that will be you know that they'll you'll fool some of the people some of the time, but ultimately you're just fooling yourself. Well, on that note, and as the great Buddhist pioneer Trungpa Rinpoche said, self-deception is one of the most dangerous or harmful parts of spiritual path. On that note, may we all become more candid and honest with ourselves and each other, 
and not just talk about truth, but live and embody it, whatever that means, at least be honest with ourselves. And I have a very questioning nature, Jay, I, as I know you do. So I hope we'll keep exploring and questioning together and find our better ways because there's certainly a lot to repair and harmonize, rebalance about this world. Tikkun, I believe you call it in Hebrew. May it be Healing. Thank you very much for being on the Awakening Now podcast. And if you're interested, Google J. Michelson's name and you'll find many things or his book, The Gate of Tears, his articles, columns, blogs on the beast and the daily forward, etc., and Jay's a Dharma teacher. He has retreats and many things that we can be- learn from and benefit from. So thanks a lot for coming on. And um, it's almost Friday night, so Shabbat Shalom. And namaste, Om. And love to you. And let's talk soon. Be well. All right. Thank you, everyone. Love to one and all. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.